Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about everything, life and how to be an entrepreneur. What happened to dinosaurs? What's the best recipe for fried chicken? What's the best plan for intermittent fasting? What's going on with our inner child? How's therapy working out for you? Whatever it is my guests are into, I want to unpack it so that we can all understand. These are conversations. This is information for the curious. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. Okay, so let's just jump in. I feel like the question to start every interview with right now is like, how you doing? How's it going? How's life in 2020? All things considered, Rachel, I'm good. I, I'm good. I'm grateful. I've learned so much this year. My relationships have gone deeper. I've gone deeper, you know, yeah. I, I could not, I would not have expected that. I would not have known that. This is not in any way the way I planned for this year to go, you know, and I'm like everybody. The COVID caught me in the middle of something, but I'm great. How are you? <laughs> same. A lot of the same answers for me. I, I agree with you. I tend to really truly live my life asking how this experience, no matter if it's good or bad, is happening for me. And so there have been parts of this year that have been really hard. And even in the midst of that hardship, there has been so much beauty. There has been exactly like you said, deeper relationship with my friends and my family and gratitude for what we do have. But same, like lots of pivoting this year. I mean, you said this caught you in the midst of something. What were you in the midst of doing when all of this went down? Coming off the Hamilton stage, people were asking me, of course, you know, so what, what's your dream role? What do you want to do now post Hamilton? And what, what do you do after Hamilton? Right. You know, so I kept it specific enough and vague enough. You know, I've really learned how to special way, a specific way that you have to like, I think, you know, call up your dreams because you really can have these things that you want. But if you're, <laughs> you know, if you, I feel like if you order up wrong, you know, the, the universe can. A million percent. Yeah. The universe can, you know, has a sense of humor too. And it also, and it, and it will teach you these lessons, you know, again, it'll send you what you ask for essentially. And so it's like, and right. when what you ask for shows up, you're like, oh no, I didn't mean like this. It's like, yeah, well, what did you mean? So I said, you know, I want to do the things that nobody would let me do before Hamilton. That's what I wanted to do, you know? So I don't, whatever those things are, I don't want to go back to doing, you know, the little, the same little jobs I was doing before this paradigm shifting, life-changing experience. So I, I started making these records that I love so much that I think the first one I released after Hamilton was a, was a Christmas album that came out 2016, that came out uh, the day the day after the election, I was in New York City. I had to do press for my Christmas album in 2016. I'm sure you have Trump supporters that are listeners too. You know, we'll probably get right, right. We accept everybody, but yeah. But it, that was um, that was 
very strange to say the least, primarily because at that time, 2016, it felt like I had my skin ripped off, you know? And there were a whole lot of very smug and satisfied Trump voters. It felt like there was a movement. It felt like there, there was, a, there, you know, the reason, the reason why the polls got so much of that wrong was because people were not saying who they were, they were not telling the truth about who they were gonna vote for, I guess because of shame. You know, that's also an interesting thing even to look at. Why, why wouldn't you say if you were going to, you know, but, but if for whatever reason, there was this underground, what felt like for a lot of us, felt like this underground movement. And so we were, based on what we were reading, based on what we were seeing, and, and, and also what our instinct, like our sort of common sense was like, well, surely, you know, America's not going to, surely they're not going to ignore this. And I, but, but she did. America did. I don't want to misgender America, but <laughs> the next day I was promoting a Christmas album, a very strange time, Christmas album. And then I knew that the next thing, if, if I really wanted to spread my wings as an artist in music, I needed to take the plunge and write my own songs. I had to, I had to be the first singer to sing a song instead of the, you know, 500th singer to sing a song. So that's what, uh, and everybody told me when you make an original album, don't think you're just going to put it out and expect it to find its way to people. You have to tour a record. You have to travel all around the country and you have to play at county fairs and middle schools and, you know, radio stations, all that stuff. So I was prepared to do that. I worked hard on this album. It's called Mr. All Original Music. I poured my heart into this record. We opened in Los Angeles. We had a show in Las Vegas and then the tour got canceled because of COVID. So, but I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't cry about it. I mean, co, you know, this, this virus was a very serious thing. And I just wanted to, at first, I just wanted to get home. I just wanted to be with my family. We didn't know how serious this thing was going to get or how close it was going to get to home. So it was just like that desire to get home and hold your family close. And where are you based? Where are you based? LA, LA. Okay. That's what it caught me. Okay. Got it. I mean, there are about 27 things you just said that I want to unpack, <laughs> but something, something I, I love when someone sort of touches on a thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I'd be interested to hear your perspective on this, is I think as a woman in business, as a woman in the entertainment industry or in media, that you have to be twice as good as the men. Mm in order to get sort of the same opportunity. Um, and this idea of like, you have to write your own music, you have to be the first person to sing it. Two of my best friends are black women. And so I sort of have this narrative as part of what I am able to experience is like, if I think as a white woman that I have to work twice as hard, they've got to work four times as hard, right? And so I'm curious, as you talk about this idea of sort of you're paving your own way and you have to, you're also kind of under the banner of this thing that you did this like once in a lifetime, this has never happened before. It will never happen again. This iconic role that you have played and you're trying to chart your own course now. Does it feel like, cause there are times that I feel like, man, I, I feel like I'm working as hard to get half as much. Yeah. Like, so does there, does it feel like, is that just any artist trying to break into the industry and the way that you're trying to do it would have to work this hard? Or does that feel like 
and I've got to be an exceptional singer and I've got to know how to do media and I have to write my own music. And like, is that normal or is that I got to work twice as hard to get? For sure. My, my wife, my partner has to work even harder than I, you know, black women have it, you know, even harder than I do. That's, that's the reality. You know, my parents drummed that into me too, when I was coming up. And I'll also say it's way better now than it's ever been. Sure. For for women, for artists of color, long way to go. But it's it's better now than it's ever been. There are more opportunities now than there have ever been. Well, I guess what I think about it is that there were many years of my life where I felt very discouraged by that. Like I would see male contemporaries who I'm like, you're barely trying right. and you're getting all of this recognition, right? And so I'm at a place in my life now where it it empowers me. I feel inspired because I'm like, okay, fuck you. Sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to cuss with you. But I'm like, fuck you, fine. I'll work four times as hard. It just, I'm going to accept that this is what is happening right now because I have a vision in my heart and a desire to to create something. And if this is what it takes, I will play by your rules until I get to make the rules. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, there was no real choice for me otherwise, you know, I mean, I was either going to, I was going to f- figure out my way within the system, how to get, how to get the most and thank God. And I mean that literally, you know, I'm, a, you know, a man of faith and I. Right. We'll, we'll, we'll bleep out my cuss words. Sorry. No, please. No, I wasn't saying that. <laughs> um, so please watch your mouth, Rachel. Um, no, I listen, fuck it. I curse too. I don't. <laughs> that's you know the guy the guy cares too much about that this right agreed but um i think i decided to work within the system there are people that don't there are people that that go right that, that just go completely independent and decide to fuck the whole system i'm gonna mm-hmm. go over here and build my own system and i have respect for that i i may have gotten to that point but to be honest, you know, I was auditioning for things and I was trying to, I was trying to find, to maximize and try to find my place within a system. And absolutely, there were times when my hands were tied. There were, there were times when I was marginalized, even, you know, even still, but I have used my voice. I've pushed back against that. I've, I've walked away from opportunities. I quit jobs. I've said no to certain opportunities because, you know, so, so within the system, I have continued to, to push and people pushed before me, which is the only reason why I've been able to build as much as I have. And, and the, you know, and I, and I push as hard as I can for myself and for the people behind me. I'm curious, and if this is a question you've answered a million times and you're tired of answering it, that's fine too. But I'm curious, when you got the role in Hamilton, I I assume that none of y'all could have known what you were, like that what it was going to be. How in the world could you have, like when you were, let's say, rehearsing, were you like, wow, this is a thing? Or were you just like, God, I hope people like this <laughs> musical about American history? Yeah. I had been in the industry long enough to to be able to recognize something special and, and something rare, you know, so because I read a lot of stuff. I'm auditioning for things. I'm going to see things. And so I knew, you know, in the first 30 seconds of that opening number, you know, right. that this is how, how literate 
and fresh and bold this piece of writing was. I knew that. What I didn't know, what we never knew in rehearsals, at the public, what we could not have known was how America would respond to it, how an, if an audience would respond to it. Look, we, the, the history is littered with examples of artists and great art that were not appreciated in their time. You know, some of our favorite artists of all time, you know, died penniless and heartbroken because the world did not know what they had. And, you know, and now we, we play their music and we read their plays and, oh, what a genius, you know, but, you know, we, we look at their paintings. So I didn't know if Hamilton would fall into that category where maybe someday some kid discovered, oh, my gosh, look at this great thing they made off Broadway back in 2015 or whatever, whenever the hell we made the thing. That was, I, I feel a profound sense of gratitude that Hamilton and those of us that were lucky enough to be a part of that original company were being celebrated in in our time in our lifetime that we're that we're able yeah. to reap the the wonderful tremendous rewards of of this like you know groundbreaking show and yeah it's a, that's a that doesn't always happen and how has it been with it coming out on, on Disney Plus? Is that like a whole new fresh wave of fans? Whole new fresh wave because the only 1,300 people could see it a night on Broadway. So the, our director, Tommy Kale, said to me on the f- Thursday before we premiered, him and I were talking and he was like, Leslie, just so you know, like more people are going to, see your performance this weekend than saw the 500 performances you did as Aaron Burr. So that's, you know, it's a little trippy. It's a little hard to wrap your brain around, but it's the truth. You know, the way that's what streaming can do. That's what television can do. It can, you know, beam you out into the universe. It just, it, it just made us so accessible. It democratized it for, for what, $5.99, $6.99. You could gather your family in the living room and watch this thing as many times as you want. Having, I want to say I've seen it three, maybe four times now. And the thing that I say to everyone, it, first of all, it was such a gift that it was streaming because how very few people besides those 500 shows got to see the original cast, which is so sick. Because if you, like our family's been listening to that soundtrack for years. In fact, my three-year-old daughter, for the longest time, she's heard it all her life. But I just assume she's too little to know the words. And just the other day was the first time she was like, how does a bastard? And I was like, oh God, I (laughs) I have ruined this child. Oh no, please don't say that at preschool. She goes to like a Christian preschool. I'm like, please don't sing that. Don't sing that. But it was so amazing to get to see the original cast. But the thing that I say to everyone is when the world makes it so that we are allowed to see live theater again, that I'm in a nerd out so hard right now, but there is nothing, nothing in the world is like Hamilton life. Nothing. Mm. Like even uh, like you, there's something in the air, there's something in the energy. I don't care. I've seen it in different cities and it is so special because every single actor brings a different interpretation of the characters they're playing. That's so incredible. So that is my nerdy like thing for people. When you can go to live theater again, you must see the show live. It ministers. 
administers, you know, and there is, I am a person who really believes in, and I, I like to fiercely protect sacred space within myself and around me, you know, not my, my whole life, maybe someday it will be, but you know, my whole life isn't sacred space, you know, that time, those places are, are very special, sacred, sacred relationships, sacred um, moments. And that, that whole time, primarily because of the, the words that Lynn gave us, there was so much truth in it. There was so much honesty in it. There was power in it. So that time to me, you know, doing that show, eight shows a week, 500 times or so, it felt, it felt, um, it was the most useful I've ever felt as an artist because I felt like I was, you know, serving up good food. I felt like I was, you know, like I was, I was, a, I was being used. I was a part of something that was, um, I, I think I've said it, that people could really make use of in their, in their lives outside the theater, you know. What does it look like to you to hold boundaries to protect sacred space? Because I think, so me and my three best friends are hippies at heart. And we're very uh, focused on the energy that we have as people and the energy that we allow into our lives. And I think if you're someone who cares deeply about protecting that for yourself, for your family or your relationships, but you're going into situations, let's say outside of COVID times, you're going into situations where you're working within the entertainment industry, or you're dealing with not everybody is going to share your beliefs about that. Right. And so what does it look like to you to like create boundaries for yourself so that that energy is sort of not infecting your space? Yeah. Part of the reason why you and your friends are doing that and and I, and I do it, you know, in the places that I choose to do it is because that energy is read by other energies. Other energies can feel that. They know what a person will tolerate and what a person won't, you know, and sometimes you're tested. And in those opportunities, you have to take it, you know, you have to take those opportunities to respectfully tell somebody, I'm not into that. You know, this is, I'm, I'm doing something else here, you know, so this is what this is what we're doing in this circle here, you know, and like respectfully, you can go do that over there. But yeah, that's that's what it looks like. I I I just I like leaving space in my life for like for for holiness and reverence and a certain kind of seriousness and and a joy. There's a, there's a sweetness and a joy, even in the even in the seriousness. Obviously, you know, I wouldn't be going to do it if it was if it was dreadful you know it's there's a joy there that I preserve too when I when I protect the sacred space so it's just it's just a, a place in my life that is reserved for the best of me that is reserved for the best of me where I am not where I set aside any kind of pettiness any kind of selfishness any kind of fear any kind of you know all those things we know them Right. I make a I make space for my virtue. And, you know, whether I'm no longer in the Hamilton sphere of, you know, I I don't do that show anymore, but I still make space for, you know, that these albums I just put out this Christmas album and my, you know, my collaborators, the people that I work with. I'm working with like minded people, by the way. So when we come into the studio, we have a ball. We truly do. They're like my brothers. I mean, it's just it's so fun. But 
The work is not fast. We don't rush through the work. And the it's always about the intention, like how, how we're going to get to wherever we want to get to. It's about our intention. How are we starting? And so if the, if our intention is about, listen, here's the other thing I tell when I, when I'm speaking to young people, am I running my mouth too much? No, I love it. I could talk to people about energy and like boundaries and space and call it like all day. We can talk about this for hours. Keep going. When I'm, when I'm talking to young people, you know, I just did, I just spoke to a, a group of college kids recently and I'm like, you have to know why you're doing what it is you set out to do. What I mean is like, what are you in it for? If you're in it for the cash, if you're in it for fame, if you're in it for chicks, if you're in it for whatever the thing is, know it for yourself because don't miss it when it shows up. If you're in it for chicks, when they show up, like that's what, great, go, go get that. Right. If you're right. for the dough, if you're in it for the payday, when the payday comes, you know, don't miss it. It's here. The payday's here. Now, Right. Maybe it didn't come exactly the way you wanted it to come, but there's the payday, you know? So it's like, you know, really understanding why you're doing what you're doing. What are your intentions? This Christmas album, I, I'm, the feedback has already started, you know, and we, the, first and foremost, I have to tell you, honest, our honest intention, because this was a pivot. I didn't plan to put out a Christmas album. <laughs> right. I was supposed to be on tour for my last record. I was, you know... But two, three months into lockdown, we're like, can we be creative? Is there anything we can make? And, you know, there was something about this time. As Americans, we really only allow ourselves like three weeks a year, usually. It's like Christmas and New Year's. Like th those are the only times as a culture, as in this, some, some countries, they do it once a day. They stop, they rest, they chill. We like... We give our, our whole year is about the hustle, the grind, the dough. Like that's what we do as Americans, but between Christmas and New Year's, that's our deep breath. And so there was something I think about this time about being home with my family while the, you know, some of the mood is different. It's, it reminded me of the holidays. And so I was thinking of what this Christmas was going to feel like for people, you know, people lost so much. I, I heard this thing recently about how we are all, we all, we're not all in the same boat, but we're all in the same storm. So I said all of that to say, I wanted this album to feel, I know it's in the marketplace. I know it's being sold in the marketplace, but I wanted it to feel like a gift. I wanted it. I wanted people, when people listened to it, I wanted it to feel like I left it under their tree for them. Or it was a part of the seven gifts of Hanukkah. It was, or it was a, you know, it came, their parents wrapped it up for them for Kwanzaa. You know, I, I wanted it to feel like a gift. And art, I think, you know, at the end of the day, art is about ushering people into catharsis, that spontaneous rush of emotion. And so that's like, whether it's laughter or tears or, or laughter through tears, you know, this album, I wanted it to run the gamut. So it's joyful. It is joyful. And then we leave, we make space for your pain too. We sit with you in that too, on this, on this project. That's awesome. I loved, you know, you started off talking about this idea of sort of setting intentions and working to achieve a goal and sort of 
for lack of a better description, saying the goal wrong. Yeah. Because I have experienced that many times in my life and it took a really big sort of saying the goal wrong to figure out that I was doing this. And so I'm a big believer that you have to be very specific when you call a shot and when you say what it is that you want. Wow. My example of this is, you know, grew up super poor and struggled financially my whole life and, you know, moved out of my parents' house and worked three jobs. And all I thought was just like, I want to have a million dollars. I want to have a million. If I had a million dollars, then everything would be good and I would have no problems. I just, I want to make a million dollars. And I've uh, been an entrepreneur for 17 years. And for so many years I struggled and it was just this huge thing. I want to get to this place. I want to get to this place. It was this, like the top of the mountain for me. And then I found myself inside of 2018 with the biggest financial success I'd ever had in my life at just wildly more successful than I ever anticipated. And 2018, 2019 were some of the hardest years of my life because I could have all the financial success, but the, the energy required and the pace required to keep that up was devastating for me. I never saw my kids. I was always on the road. I it was like, oh my gosh, but these people want to book you to do this thing. And it's like a six figure deal for an hour. And uh, you get so wrapped up in, and it wasn't until I sort of was able to separate myself from that time yeah. that I was like, oh, you called it wrong. <laughs> like you named it as like a financial goal. And it wasn't ever about the finances. It was like, what is the life you want to have? What does a wealthy, abundant life look like for you, regardless of money, right? So like, what's your thing where you sort of called the shot wrong and then you're like, oh, I got to reframe how I'm saying what it is I want out of life. Oh, I love what you said about a wealthy lifestyle, because that's really powerful that you can call into your life and you can engineer no matter what those tax returns say. You can feel wealthy on a lot of different income rungs, (laughs) you know? To me, what I prioritize is my freedom. I prioritize my liberation. And my freedom looks like I don't, I will work as hard as I need to, to make sure that I never need to be in a place, that I never am forced to be in a place where I am being mistreated or undervalued or you know not my not the best version of myself for for dough i had there were times where i had to do that through my 20s but that sure. what i that is what a wealthy lifestyle looks to me is the freedom of choice um, that now 20 years into my career i have you know i i've been able to thank god i've been able to get some of that so you know, now when I when I say yes to a film, you know, I, I don't want to have to say yes to I don't want to have to do a movie that I don't believe in because I have to pay my bills. So that that means, you know, for me, it's, you know, there are four or five little jobs that I need to take to 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 maintain and preserve my liberation, my freedom, because that that is what it looks like to me that the, when I can say no, because if my wife needs me at home, if I'm needed you know, by my family, if there's a, if there's a project that I believe in, that's not going to pay me a lot of money, but, I, but like Hamilton was, 
Hamilton, there was no money up front. There was no money for years being involved in the development of that show. But I believed in that show. I believed in what it had to say. I didn't sign on to be a part of a movie on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> I, I was committing to be a part of a reading for an off-Broadway show. That off-Broadway show paid me $400 a week. And, you know, what, what I, and, and the opportunities came from, you know, wherever, you know, I had a, a $500,000 television contract at NBC. I could do that or because that the television show shot in LA, I couldn't do that and Hamilton off Broadway. I had to walk away from that. If, because what I'm telling young people, it's like, I, what I knew when that thing showed up is if, are you in it for the dough? Because if you're in it for the dough, go get the money. That's not why I was in it. Hamilton is the, re, you know, the, doing that kind of work. Um, Hamilton was making me, it was fashioning me into not only a better performer, but I was a better man. I was a better husband. I was a better friend because I was happy. Because I was, I was living on purpose. Whatever you have to do. I know, I know not everybody is there yet. You know, not all, not all of your listeners are there yet, but I wish it for everybody. If you can feel it at least one time in your life, it is paradigm shifting. It, you know, just reorders your priorities. Did you always have that clear intention about your personal values or is that something that you've developed as you've gotten older? It developed over time, but I, but I do, I grew, <laughs> I grew up in Philadelphia, baby, Philadelphia. Are you so proud of your state right now? Believe I'm proud of my state. You better believe I'm proud of my city. You better, my, you better believe. That is who we are. That is who we are. And let me tell you something. There has been a concerted effort to suppress the vote of Black people in this country for decades. Yep. Because I travel in the way that I do, my wife and I have voted by mail for the last, for several of the last elections. We, you know, it is very normal to us living in Los Angeles for us to vote by mail. But because of the COVID restrictions, because my parents in Philadelphia who are in the vulnerable population and, and hundreds of thousands, millions of other people in, in Pennsylvania, that is their reality. Voting was never easier than it was this year. Usually what? You have to make a decision of whether to call out from work to go vote or not, because it's not a national holiday and not everybody gives you the time. Usually you have to figure out who's going to wait, who's going to get my kid to school and, and, and then I got to get to work and how much you have to figure all that out to get to the polls. This was the first year ever that we didn't have that to figure out. And so what did we see? Yeah, it was it was it's never been easier to vote. And people did it with people did it with they voted their hearts, they voted their conscience, but they did, you know, didn't cost them anything, you know, because there was a U.S. Postal Service also, by the way. But they filled in their <laughs> thing, they filled in their ballot, they sent it in. And, you know, you don't know how it's going to happen as a black person in America. You know, you don't you don't know if you're if you're if your vote matters literally or symbolically, you know, you don't you're not you're never really sure. Uh, and that that's by design too, to keep us off balance and to keep our footing unsure. But very proud of Philadelphia. So said all that to say, yes. you know, there's a there's a there's an energy and a spirit to cities. I've learned this now, having done Hamilton and and really sort of 
gotten to know historically sort of the character of New York, the character of Bostonians, the character of Philadelphians. You know, I just never really had thought about that. There's something about doing that show and then post Hamilton traveling around the way that I do with these concerts. You can, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, America is, America is a, a gorgeous, wonderful country. And somebody from, uh, Somebody from Phil, uh, the, the spirit of Philadelphia, very different than the spirit of even Pittsburgh, very different than the spirit of Harrisburg, very different than the spirit of Boston. You know, a lot, lots of working class cities and all that, but the people are different. So anyway, growing up in Philadelphia, I was, uh, we took it for granted a little bit that we were, you know, we were, <laughs> all of my friends were gifted, brilliant, Black, confident, <laughs> you know, of course, I, I didn't say all my friends. I, I just, you know, I, I had I had a lot of examples of young people and adults that were, they were who they were. Um, so that is just how my parents brought me up. I remember one a formative experience that I had coming up. I, I, I did my first Broadway show when I was 17. I went into Rent on Broadway when I was 17 years old. And through that, I met casting directors and people who, you know, wanted to give me more opportunities. And my parents, it was very important to my parents that I went to college, that I went to school. They were both first generation college graduates and they definitely were interested in seeing that continue. And I was, I was at Carnegie and I got offered another Broadway show. I got offered to originate a show at, um, called Aida on Broadway. And it was very important to my parents that I finished school and I was telling them like, look, I will go do this show and then I'll come back. Anyway, there's this big family <laughs> drama where, where my parents essentially made that decision for me. It's a mark on the timeline because I, I was 18, 18 at that time. And I really marked that as like, I let them know too, like, this is the last decision I'm going to allow you guys to make for me. You can, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to fight you on this, but after this, they're all mine. And I learned a valuable lesson from that, not even necessarily the one that they thought I was going to learn. What I learned was, because we said no, and this is a big opportunity. This is Disney. and There's a huge show. Absolutely. And you know what, Rachel? I woke up the morning after having said no, and the sky didn't fall in. I went to a party that weekend, and then I went to class the next week, and, you know, everything was fine. Everything was fine. And so with that, the, the power or the, I was so empowered from that at a young age in that way to know that sometimes you're going to, you're allowed to say no and disappoint older people, more powerful people. And you are allowed to walk away from these opportunities. You must retain ownership of your yes and your no. I learned that at 18, that you can, that, so, so you said, how did I come to it? I mean, it was just, just the lessons of my life and also watching, growing up in that city and watching other adults, you know, that, that as long as you were walking through life and you were uh, respectful to others, you had the right to, to demand that people be respectful to you. (laughs) You know, all those things and that, that, that I was, deserving of the air that I fucking breathe. <laughs> that, right. That I am worth the space that I take up, you know? And so there are bare minimums 
when you believe that about yourself. They're just bare minimums, a certain kind of a certain kind of respect in this in our engagement and in our interaction. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to I'm going to have to own the yes. Man. I know a lot of the work that you do is with women and young women. And I'm raising this young lady and it's just so that's one of the you know, she's going to have four or five lessons from dad that she hears again and again and again. I think that's such an important lesson for our young girls. When she was one of the first words she learned was no, of course. <laughs> so she it was so cute because she's what, one and a half, two years old and she knows how to say no. So people in the family would ask her things just to hear her say no. Lucy, can I have a kiss? No. Oh, and they give her a kiss. Lucy, can I have a hug? No. And they give her a hug. And my wife and I were one night we were talking about it and we were talking about how, yeah, I know she's two. I get it. But we we got to have a talk with the family. We have to talk with the people that like, if she says no, <laughs> if you ask her and she says no, she needs she needs to understand that she has autonomy over her body in that way, even from two. My mom and dad don't even cross lines. When I say no, when I say don't touch me, they don't. No, it's so, it's so freaking important. We do the same thing with our daughter. We have three older boys and then our, my daughter's three. And that was something that was hard for, you know, the boys are so rough and tumble and they're like, they mess with each other and whatever. And it was very important for us, especially with her. It's important for the boys, but especially with her that she understands the, exactly what you're saying. If she does not want to give you a hug, she doesn't have to. But she understands because, and even trying to explain that to our boys, our oldest son's 13 and they sort of, you know, they go down from there and trying to explain it to an older brother who's like, why? Yeah. And it's like, hey, buddy, because someday she's going to find herself in a situation and she needs to understand that if she tells a boy no and he doesn't respect that, then that's a problem right? It's not, so many of us were raised with like, oh, did he do, oh, he did it. He likes you, right? Like he's doing that because he likes you. He, you know, he pulled your hair because he likes you. And it sort of teaches us as young women that like our bodies are something that somebody else gets to mess with or, or control whether or not we want them to. So I am with you, you guys, 100%. How old is she now? She's three, three and a half. Okay. Okay. It's also like, it's also the step even farther than that. It's that and, you know, teaching, like giving her, encouraging a a sense of presence in her body and her, her movement enough to know, you know, I remember when at the top of Me Too, which was such a wild time, you know, when those first stories were coming out, I think it was an education, certainly for me, when I was, you know, when you would hear This guy went down, that guy went down. Every single time I have to tell you, Rachel, my first inst my first thing when I would heard, when I heard, oh, this guy got fired, that I'm like, damn, I mean, how bad could it have been? Like what it what it what could he have done? You know, he just he said you looked nice that day. And when those stories started to come out of like what actually was said or what actually was done, you're like, I had no idea. I mean, I've I've never really held any kind of seat of power. I know some of these guys are, you know, they are also a product of toxic masculinity, of, of of the abusive nature of that, you know, how it can corrode and make you a worse version of yourself, even as a man. You know, these guys were, were also abused by the, by the lessons handed down, like a, patriarchy shit. I remember some of those, you know, some of them were then even more nuanced. 
right? Like a couple of the monsters fell right away, just like wicked, evil shit. Like just, they went down right away. And then what do we hear? Then there were stories with more nuance where it's like, well, that just sounds like a bad date. Like literally, (laughs) you know, no, but no, he didn't force you to stay there. I mean, what happened? Like he, he said some things that you didn't like, right? And you didn't feel empowered enough. You didn't feel present enough in your own body that you felt confident to say, this has been a lovely evening or this has been a horrible evening. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm going to stand up and I'm going to walk out of the room. Now, if you stop me from walking out of the room, we have a different conversation. You can hurl insults at me at my back as I'm walking out of the room. That's a different conversation. But some of these stories were just about somebody that didn't feel present enough in their own body that they felt like they could get up and walk out of the room. I don't want that for my kid. I don't want that for any of these kids. You know, so that that we got to talk about that too, that there are some situations that only require as much courage as it takes to stand up and put one foot in front of the other until you are at the elevator and then you are out there. We'll deal with everything else. So right. We can deal with the, the HR department. We can deal with writing letters. We can, do, we can deal with a lot of other stuff, but it, all that's required right now for you to not suffer more injury or more trauma is for you to stand up and walk out the fucking door. And the fact that there are young women, we have some young men that don't feel enough agency to do that. That's a problem. And we have to fix that in the way we're raising these kids. Right. The, this idea, so many of us, I know men, some men have this too, but so many women are raised to be people pleasers. So we're, we're meant to please those around us. We're meant to be a good girl. We're meant to do what is expected of us. And I think of this so many times there were, you know, there are a handful of men, some of the monsters that you mentioned that nobody was surprised by, right? right? Like my first job in the entertainment industry was at Miramax. Not one person who worked at Miramax was surprised by Harvey Weinstein stories. Not one person. And even in that, I thought, how twisted is this? That I worked in this environment that was, I mean, I dare people to find a a more toxic work environment than Miramax in its heyday. Mm. And I was there for two years as a very young woman. And it really wasn't until he got brought up on charges. It was the first time that I thought, Oh yeah, that was not okay. Right. But nobody said anything, right? Nobody said that something wasn't okay, but we all, it's like that, that old, you know, sort of story about boiling a frog in water, that if you put a frog into a pot of boiling water, it'll immediately jump out. But if you put the frog into cold water and you just slowly bring up the temperature, it will die because it won't get out of the hot water. And so many of us are living in that environment where even in that instance, it, I'm telling you, it would not have occurred to one of us, women and men at Miramax at the time, because you wanted to be part of this amazing thing that everybody was creating. Right. Nobody was going to say, oh yeah, he like the things that he would say and yell at people, let's, let's remove the sexual piece of it. The things that I have heard him say to people that we were like, oh yeah, that is a totally normal thing <laughs> for the CEO of a company. That was a very normal thing. And you'd just be like, oh, don't upset Harvey. But we all just sat with it. 
we all just sat with it and like slowly boiled in the water. It's, it's wild. Yeah. There's not really any point to that other than. It's, you know, it's just, um, uh, though that shit is there to teach us. That's a very important story that we should never forget because look what we endured. Look what we allowed. Look what we let happen on our watch. And then you go, and then all you're trying to do is be, awake enough, aware enough in the rest of your life, I never want to do that again. I never want to allow something like that again. Is there anywhere else in my life that I'm allowing that shit to happen? Like, that's what that's what the importance of that story is. Because yeah, that's, cool. that's, a, that's a terrible, you know, that was 2016. Or 2016, I was like, well, let me tell you something. After these four years of living through, I'm not, listen, I don't want to tell, Jesus. I don't want to test anything, but my my. I was going to say, you know, it would be really hard for America to surprise me again. And I, I'm going to I'm going to rock with that. I'm going to rock with that. Essentially, I was shaken awake and I want to stay awake forever. I want to yeah. stay awake forever. I don't want to I don't ever want to laugh at someone's candidacy again or not not take a threat seriously, not take a threat very seriously. We're doing it again. You know, uh, I don't I don't have a job in Washington. I only have the platform that I have, but we're doing it again. You know, you talk about the slow boiling pot. What are we watching right now in D.C.? Just like little we've never seen a lame duck president, you know, in the in the days following this election. What what we are what we are sort of slowly allowed. we're, We're allowing this this water to get real, real slow. Well, and here, okay, like if we're going to talk about this, one of the things that I feel like we are all the boiling water right now is social media and how much, I'm going to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but how much control this has over our lives, social media and media in general, how much those stories have control over our lives and what different parts of our population are taught to believe. Because look, this country has a huge population of racism. Even people who don't identify it, it's built into our DNA. It's built into the DNA of this country to be racist if you are a white person. It just is. You have to own that. You have to acknowledge that. You have to do the work. But I don't think it has ever been as divisive to exist than it feels right now. And then it has felt in the last handful of years. My mom's in town and she was telling me that my me mom papa, my grandparents, who are like just salt of the earth, uh, you know, good old Christian, oaky, southern, whatever, she went to visit me mom papa <laughs> and on the piano they have an eight by ten of uh Donald and Melania. Yeah. And my mom was like, well, number one, where do you even find? Where do you even get this piece? Like, are there pictures of the grandkids? Like, no, you just you have the trumps on the piano. Yeah. And my mom was like, why do you have this here? And my Nima, and and she means this, she believes this. They just, I mean, they just represent such good Christian values. Right. And she that is her truth. Right. And like she has a she has played church in the piano for 50 years. That is such a disconnect. There's such a disconnect between the reality that Mima lives in and the reality that I live in and what she's being served up when she looks at her Facebook page or when she goes and watches the news that makes her believe that life is a certain way. And that is 
it's insanely dangerous. Yeah. Like I feel like aliens would come to this planet and be like, oh, you let this handful of companies control the news and what you believe. And it is, it is so terrifying to me. I was dropping my daughter off at preschool last week. It was the week, yeah, the week of the election. It feels like it's been 10 years, but I think it's just been a week. And I live in Austin, Texas. And Austin's very interesting because Austin has a bunch of liberal people and it's still Texas. Yeah. So I was dropping my daughter off at preschool and a guy pulls up to me in a big old truck and he's got a big Trump flag. I mean, a flag. He's like legit. And my first thought Mm. is all the things. What are you do? You know, and I have all these opinions about this man in the truck. And I heard this, I heard someone say this about a year ago and I, I keep repeating it because I love it. They said, your first thought is what the world tells you to believe. Your second thought is who you actually are. And so my first thought was all the awful things about this guy. And then my second thought was I watched this guy get out of his truck and I'm like, that's a daddy. That's a daddy dropping his kid off at school. He's going to go to work later. You know, he's going to work. He's trying to support his family. He's, and we have gotten to such a place that we, we can't even do life with people yeah. who aren't like us. Like we are being taught to hate anybody who doesn't vote like us, love like us, believe like us, have the same color of skin, have the same religious affiliation. And what it does is creates such a greater divide so that you can never see the humanness of that person who, because they don't look like you. And it is terrifying to me. But you, I love what you're, I love what you're saying. What I'll add from where I sit. I think you're right. I think you're right. But I'll say it gets really challenging. I'm not talking about Mima necessarily, you know, but I'm talking about when you see evil being done in a person's name, let's set aside, let's say, let's say for instance, he's not evil. Let's say that, but we're all seeing the evil done in his name. I mean, right? Well, see, that's the thing. I'm like, is there a segment of the population see it. who is not served that? Like who really believes like, have you seen um, The Social Dilemma on Netflix? I haven't watched it yet. Oh my gosh, please watch this documentary. The whole thing is about, I know I sound like someone who believes in flat earth or something, but the whole thing is about how how social media controls, like, uh, this tripped me out. Like, when you go on to your Google, not even social, yeah. your Google and my Google are two completely different websites. Yeah based on where you are in the world. Like, so if you're in LA and you search climate change is, it's going to auto-populate. Climate change is ruining the world. Climate change is killing polar bears. Climate change, whatever. If you search, if you Google that in Oklahoma, it's like climate change is fake. Climate change is a hoax. It's serving you what, based on who is around you or what you've clicked on, it's serving you a reality that is not actual reality. That's my fear. Sorry, I just went off. Sorry, no, sorry. I, yeah, a friend of mine was telling me about a documentary he watched, my assistant actually, who's also my buddy. But he was saying that uh, he just watched a documentary on how 
people are getting radicalized on YouTube, how YouTube is radicalizing people. And, you know, that it's essentially, he made me understand it with cat videos. You know, he's like, if you like cat videos, YouTube says, oh, you like cat videos. And it starts throwing cat videos at you, right? So, you know, imagine if you search, you just hear something about scented candles or pillows and you search pillows, they start showing. So it's like the way that it works with radicalization is that, you know, you could, you could, again, just be looking for something that you heard in passing. And now it's going to, sh- it now it's going to force it down your throat. But, you know, kind of before you realize that slow, that slow yeah. boiling pot again that we were talking. About. Yeah. Because, you you know, used to be in the if, the, if you were doing research on a thing, you know, you'd have to, you'd have to have a list of books. You know, you could, you, the library wouldn't just kind of, shove books at you, you know, throw books at you, you'd have to kind of really march down a path to, to learn about something. Now it's kind of, it, yeah, it's, it reinforces itself. It gives you a little piece and then reinforces and reinforces and reinforces and reinforces. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is my big fear right now is that we can't, we can't see the truth and that there are millions of people in this country who are being served a totally different reality so I, I go back to like me, mom, papa, yeah. who if who grew up in a generation where if you saw something on the news, that was true. Yes. So now if you're these old white Republicans and you're watching Fox News, you believe that everything that you see is real. And so if your granddaughter or your daughter comes in and is like, guys, no, all of these things are happening you think that we're confused because you're like, no, no, I saw the newscaster tell me. And it's not to say that there aren't huge pieces of this that are so broken, like at its core, the system is broken. But if you are not able to even be in conversation with people who believe differently, which is what this divide is causing, then you never have an opportunity to have someone go, no, no, look at this. No, this is what's true. And, and what's true is that this is not okay. Even in, even in the social media algorithms, you know, maybe I'm giving them too much credit, but I, you know, we can still, as a generation, you know, we can still, we can look at the effects of this thing and the, and the brokenness and the flaws of it, and we can fix it. We can, we can lobby and have, and have big, big tech fix these things. Uh, We got a lot of work to do. That's just one of the Right. Honestly, watch that documentary. You will trip out. It's exciting too, you because you can pick where you want to start working and really just get to work. You can just right. <laughs> any area of society. You know, choose your pick your literally and just like go to work to fixing it for looking for the antidote. You know. Thank you for being willing to talk about. We've literally covered all the topics today. Everything that I could think of. Have we have we solved? Is it is world peace happened yet? Me and you, we figured it out. <laughs> so thank you for people who want to check out the new album, who want that gift that they want that holiday present from you. And I think honestly, we all need that right now. We all need the nostalgia. We need the holidays. We need this sort of coming back together and getting centered again and and remembering what matters. So where can they find the album? Oh, wherever you listen to your music. Uh, it's obviously on Apple Music and iTunes and Amazon and Spotify and Tidal and YouTube even. And wherever you listen to your music, it's there. 
And what's your, I know we're just talking about how scary social media is, but what's your favorite social platform that you hang out on? Well, I want you to search for this immediately because that means it's okay. serve you up more Leslie Odom Jr. You ser- search for my name one good time on YouTube so we can just shove the Leslie Odom Jr. Um, it's usually Leslie Odom Jr. everywhere. It's uh, I think it says Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all, all the stuff. I'm on it far too often. So it is a reliable way to get a message to me. Uh, Let's stay in touch. Let's stay in contact. Love that. Thank you, man. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. The Rachel Hollis podcast is hosted by me, Rachel Hollis. Our show is produced by Chelsea Harfouche and edited by Andrew Weller with additional production support by Sterling Coates. Our executive producer is Cameron Berkman. The Rachel Hollis podcast is a 3% chance production.